This is not the 1990s anymore, where people are going around trying to disprove God's existence. Sure, it happens a little bit, but in this age of vague spirituality, people now deny God's holiness. The primary attack on Christianity is now a moral one. Young people don't wonder if God exists. They wonder if God is good. Many of the people who leave the church today don't do it because they stop believing in God. They do it because they reject Christian morality. They get so confused, they think Christians are evil. We used to call this backsliding, but now we call it deconstruction because it goes beyond saying, I will no longer follow Christian morality. Deconstructionism says Christian morality is evil. The stories we ingest shape the morality we develop, but only to a point. If the morality gets too twisted, the story fails to resonate with readers. This moral confusion is why movies and TV shows just aren't as entertaining as they used to be. Superhero films in particular just don't resonate with audiences like they used to because they lack moral clarity. One way of seeing superhero fatigue is that it is moral confusion fatigue. So what do I mean by morality? And why is morality so important for good stories? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of The Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to honor God through excellent writing. And I don't have a guest on the show today. I just have some thoughts that have been brewing for a few months that I want to share. So how do you put a message into your book without your book becoming preachy? This is a question we discuss a lot on this podcast. The less you think about your moral system, the preachier and less believable your book will be. Fiction is a powerful tool to show the consequences of actions. True fiction allows us to learn from the mistakes and triumphs of others. This is why the stories that we write and the stories that we read are so important. My family lives by a busy road, and one of the ways that I keep my small children from running out into that road is by telling them stories of squirrels who ran into the road and got squished. (laughs) As the fictional squirrel bleeds to death in the road, crying because of the pain, my small children decide in their hearts not to run in the road themselves. The fictional squirrel suffers so my children don't have to. The story is more effective than a sermon about the dangers of cars. But imagine if instead the squirrel survives getting run over by the car. That makes the story less believable and potentially dangerous for my small children to hear. When you write a story, you create a world. And part of that world is a moral system. And every time a character makes a choice and has a consequence, you reinforce that moral system. If your story feels unbelievable, it may be because your moral system is flawed. Humans have consciences that give us an innate sense of morality. Deep down, we know right from wrong, or at least we know the beginnings of right and wrong. And when you have to warp morality to make your point, your point will conflict with your reader's conscience and your story will come across as cheesy or unbelievable. So how do you avoid Hollywood-style sermons? There's an amoral concept that has infected Hollywood screenplays and Christian books alike. Some people call it clinicalism. Others call it clinical pluralism. This is the view that there is no right or wrong. There's no such thing as evil, just trauma. In these stories, villains don't do evil because they are evil. They do evil because they suffered trauma 
in the past. This is sometimes connected with a Marxist oppressor-slash-oppressed worldview. The oppressors are evil, and the oppressed are good. And this is an anti-Christian worldview. This is very important to clarify. In Christianity, there are no oppressors and oppressed, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. There are just wretched sinners in need of a savior. The slave is just as in need of salvation as his master. Being oppressed doesn't move you one inch closer to the kingdom, and being an oppressor does not disqualify you from the love of Christ. But it's not just that this amoral storytelling is unchristian. It's also boring and preachy. (laughs) We live in a broken world. Everyone experiences trauma, and when taken to its logical extreme, villains and heroes become indistinguishable. For example, in the older superhero stories, characters like Iron Man had to struggle with their own sin and learn the value of sacrifice. In the newer stories, characters like Captain Marvel beat up a man and steal his motorcycle because he told her to smile. In the moral system of that movie, Captain Marvel's actions are justified because she is oppressed and the man is an oppressor. For a superhero story to work, the protagonist must be more than just super. The protagonist must also be a hero. (laughs) But this does not just apply to superhero films. In the new Snow White that Disney is making, the lead actresses explained that Snow White doesn't get saved by the prince, and she doesn't dream about true love. She dreams about becoming the leader she knows she can be. In the original story, by contrast, longing for power and beauty was the motivation of the evil queen. The original fairy tale is an exploration of the difference between internal beauty and external beauty. It is a profoundly moral story that explores the consequence of the deadly sin of envy. The plan for the new Snow White is to tell a story about two amoral characters fighting for more power. This kind of story is boring because who cares who wins? And there was massive backlash when this interview went live and now Disney has delayed the movie for a year of reshoots. So we'll see what will happen. Perhaps they'll panic into making a shot-for-shot remake of the original. Those of you listening in the future will know how the film actually turned out. Okay, so we know how clinical pluralism makes movies boring, but how does it lead to preachiness? When a story's moral system is broken and the writer still wants to convey a message, one of the characters inevitably must give a sermon. This preachiness is not just a problem for Christian books. It's a problem for Hollywood. And if you don't believe me, I have just one thing to say. You've got to do better, Senator. If characters are allowed to suffer the consequences of their actions, the message would be organic to the story, and the sermons would be unneeded. So how do you write timeless stories that readers want to read? Well, let's contrast this clinical pluralism of modern Hollywood with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. These Christian books from 70 years ago outsell most novels published today. So pay attention. I'm about to explain part of C.S. Lewis's secret sauce. So many Christian authors that I come across say they want to write a book like the Chronicles of Narnia. So I'm going to tell you how to do that. Lewis rejected pluralism and wrote deeply moral stories. C.S. Lewis's characters are not victims of their upbringing, circumstances, or trauma. Sure, they experience trauma, but they make decisions and experience the consequences of their actions. Whether they do good or evil, their actions matter. 
Yes, taking meaningful action is a key element to an appealing character, but it goes deeper than that. And this is the key. Lewis's characters sin. Yes, even the children. In fact, most of the children sin. Edmund is a traitor and a bully. Peter lacks faith. Susan is vain. Diggory is selfish, prideful, and inconsiderate. And don't get me started on Eustace, Jill, and Erebus. The results of sin are not glossed over. Aslan suffers for Edmund's treachery, but Edmund suffers too. He is the only sibling to miss out on a magical gift from Father Christmas. In The Horse and His Boy, Aslan attacks the child Erebus, tearing up her back with his claws in punishment for how she treated her slave. Aslan is not Santa Claus. He is not a tame lion. And that makes him interesting. The more you tame God in your story, the less interesting the story will be. While readers have grown tired of reading about villains who are victims of trauma, they are not tired of reading about the White Witch, King Miraz, the Tarkin of Tashban, or the Lady of the Green Kirtle. Lewis does not glamorize sin, but he doesn't hide from it either. And by embracing Christian morality, his books become timeless. The sins of Eustace 70 years ago are the same sins that tempt me today. And I found, teaching elementary Sunday school, that if I don't censor the Old Testament stories, they hold the children's attention much more. The more I sanitize the biblical story with my modern sensibilities, the more boring it becomes. If you want your story to be interesting, you need to make your sins specific. In a Christian book, the villains are sinners, of course, but so are the heroes. We all know this, but what is sin? A vague, we are all sinners, is not enough to create interesting characters. That is like saying everyone has a personality. This is true, but it is unhelpful. A common request I get for episodes on this podcast is to do an episode about Myers-Briggs or one of the other personality tools and how authors can use those tools to create more differentiated characters. And personality tools can be useful, but what will make your characters even more differentiated is to give each of your characters a specific sin to struggle with. Don't give your characters a generic personality. Give them a specific personality. Don't make them generic sinners have them sin in specific ways. So what would those specific sins be? Well, you could use one of the three besetting sins from 1 John 2, 16 and 17. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. From one perspective, all sin fits into one of those three categories, and they have responses such as fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Or you could use the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before the one true God. You shall not make or worship idols. You shall not take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. The nice thing about the Ten Commandments is that they are already written on the hearts of your readers, their consciences bearing witness. Or you could use the seven deadly sins, which are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. These, I think, are the easiest to work with from a literary perspective because they're so deadly that death is easy to visualize and incorporate into a story. Or you could write your own sins. You know what lurks in the darkness of your own soul. Do you have the courage to bring that out into the light and put it on the page? Can your fictional characters face that which you dare not? How do they handle their sin? 
Are they a slave to it? Do they struggle with it? Do they overcome? And if so, how? How in specific do they overcome? How does their interaction with their sin affect their interactions with the other characters and with the plot? An accurate moral worldview makes your story timeless because, as the Bible says, there is no temptation that is not common to man. This means that the sins your characters face will be the same sins your readers face even hundreds of years from now. So let's talk a bit about temptation and ethics. We don't need the devil to tempt us to sin, just like we don't need outside pathogens to get sick and die. You can get sick from your own waste, and you have a sinful nature that tempts you to sin. Sure, the devil whispering in your ear doesn't help you stay clean any more than a smallpox virus helps you stay healthy. But you sin without his help and die even if you never get smallpox. Regarding temptation, there are two questions your characters must grapple with. What is the right thing to do? And am I going to do the right thing? Someone could be trying to do the right thing, but not knowing what that is and suffering the consequences from that. Somebody else may know exactly what the right thing is and still choosing not to do it or trying to do it and failing. Both of these questions give you a lot of room to explore as an author, a lot of room in your story to create interesting conflicts for your characters. And different characters will have different perspectives. But remember, you are the author and you need to have moral clarity. And that clarity is conveyed through the consequences and outcomes of the actions your characters take. So let me give you one final encouragement. As Christians, we have faced this kind of cultural moral questioning before. In the eyes of the ancient Romans, we were cannibals who refused to make the needed sacrifices to propitiate the gods and keep them from getting angry. Under their moral system, we were a danger to society. The truth survived back then, and the truth will survive in this present age. Take comfort in knowing that Christian morality comes from God himself. And take comfort knowing that God is good. He is holy and he is righteous. We know the judge of all the earth will do right. This should give us comfort, but it should also put the fear of God in us. Because we too have consciences. We know we have broken God's law, and we are damned by our own moral system. Our own deeds bear witness against us. Now is a good time to come to the cross of Christ and repent. Take the plank out of your eye, and in so doing, you will be able to see clearly to help your characters with the specks that are in their eyes. Then you will have the moral clarity to write a book that can last the test of time. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., and you have been listening to The Christian Publishing Show, a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstead. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler, and you can find that blog post version of this episode at christianpublishingshow.com slash 148. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.